My guest this week on The Chattering Hour was described in Fangoria Horror Magazine as one of the finest purveyors of erotically charged horror fiction around. Barbie Wilde is also known for her portrayal as the female Cenobite in Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. We talk about the fun time she had making that film, working on Death Wish 3, Grizzly 2, The Revenge, why she suggested to director Carl Reiner covering a man in whipped cream, modelling for greetings cards, and much, much more. Up next on The Chattering Hour, Barbie Wilde. Barbie Wilde started her career as a mime artist in the group Silence before joining the music and dance group Shock. As well as working as an actress, she presented seven TV programmes, reviewing film and music in the 1980s and 90s. In 2009, she started writing horror fiction and has published short stories and her novel The Venus Complex. Barbie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking me. And I have to say, you look... See you. you. Look, <laughs> we're going to do this talking across each other. I know that's what we normally do. Um, you look yeah. wonderful. You look really great. Um, do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm loving the hair. I, I, the no, hair no, um, thank you. So I, I just said I haven't cut my hair in um, a year. Yeah. But uh, also, I haven't had it done, as you know. I was really a natural blonde, but I just went to the hairdresser to keep her happy. Um, but this is actually for real. I've gone silvery whitey thing in the front. So basically, I am Lily Munster, my dream. <laughs> Although Morticia was my favorite, but I'll take Lily. But um, yeah. No, no, the hair is 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 quite frightening at the moment. I think you know it's just if it's any any consolation whatsoever, the eyebrows are going white now. I'm noticing more and more white hairs in my eyebrows. Oh, darling, color sport (laughs) eyebrow dye. It's fine. It's fine. I'll just work as Father Christmas. It's okay. I can, you know, I can do. There's always things I can do. Anyway, right. Dig up your beard. Um, so I want to take you right back actually you're I know you're a Canadian but where did you grow up well I grew up in in Canada and the United States and I went to university and I was kind of lost because um I had this Hungarian teacher uh who took the first year students and her job was to winnow out the (laughs) faint-hearted my drama teacher and um I, I had a job. My one play that I did was um, in that first year was playing the screaming child in the, the, um, the was it the, not the little prince, but it was an Oscar Wilde story. The happy prince. The happy prince. And I was the screaming child, which was like, I, whoa, did I give good scream back then when I was 18, who set me up for death wish three later on. Um, so that was fine. And then I, I took a year off and then I worked in the same building. I worked for the professional repertory company at that university. Then I came back, did a few classes in anthropology and art and still taking drama classes. 
and uh, played a nun and a whore in Abelard and Eloise, which is, I thought was cool. Should have seen the costume changes look, you know. And <laughs> anyway, so I'm a bit lost. And my friend Bonnie came back from London. She said, you've got to do the university's program in London. So I went, cool. I did that. She said, there's a great mime class. So I went to mime class my first month in London and met somebody called Tim Dry, who you know, who is also, you know, sidebar in Star Wars and uh, video, Notorious Video Nasty Extra as the monster. Anyway, we decided he introduced me to his mime troupe. I got into that and they offered me a place in it. I went to my, you know, teacher and said, listen, I've been offered a place here in this mime company and I would like to take it, but I won't be finishing my degree or anything. And he said, listen, so what do you need a degree? And I didn't say that. But he said, listen, you're a gypsy. You've always been in and out. This is, you know, if I could have stayed in London when I was here, your age, I would have done it. So I was able to stay um, and um, did mime, classical mime. That was incredibly lucrative. Not. <laughs> but we did a show and Marcel Marceau came to see us. And he came backstage and he waved at me. And that's a you know claim to fame. Marcel Marcel waved at me. So that was that. And then we did our own, Tim and I did our own show. And then we met these two people called Robert and Enle, and they said, join this group called Shock. And so right. that's how we moved from serious mime into dance mime. And then eventually we signed to RCA Records. Right. So that's uh, right. because they thought we were weird and unusual. And right. we were two singles with them and supported Gary Newman at Wembley. If I'd just taken the whole interview away from you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my list of questions thinking, okay, well, she's done those six. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. That's great. What, what I was going to say, what I was going to ask was, um, what, so what was your first, can you remember your first paid performing role? First paid performing role. I don't think we got much from the Arts Theatre Club. That's where we did um, our show. Funnily enough, it was called Visions from Hell and Other Stories. Isn't that amusing? Exactly 10 years before we did Hellraiser. Right. Uh, first paying job. Um, well, we did get paid when we were doing our little shock shows. Not much. I think we got, you know... Um, but, um, God, well, my first commercial I did, I can't even remember. I mean, I did one for Miracle Whip. That was fun. Um, what did, playing what Madonna did you do, what did you do oh, with the Miracle Whip? I, I just ordered a sandwich, and I ordered, I demanded Miracle Whip on it. Funnily enough, it was at the same studio that was shooting David Cronenberg's The Fly, which was kind of fun, because uh, all these people walking around me, you know costumes and I was trying to look like Madonna uh, my first paying job isn't that terrible I can't remember it must have been a mime one right but we, right. we earned a pittance basically because yeah. we're talking about the 70s in that case are we we're talking you about... are... Yes. not, not, not giving away a lady's age you you mentioned it was 10 years before Hellraiser so <laughs> people you can look that up 
this is terrible. I'm going to check my own website to see what my first <laughs> job was. Isn't that pathetic? But um, we, we were working a lot, which was so much fun. Um, but a lot of the stuff we did was after shock broke up. Right. Um, right. Because after that happened, I mean, that was us trying to go into the music business. We had two singles out. They did okay, but it wasn't, um, you know. So you um, kind of, you, you were talking about going to university and so on. So, but when did the first, when did you first realize you wanted to be a performer? I mean, was this just as a kid? <laughs> this, this is the, you found yourself. Um, okay, I was one of those miserable children that had no friends. I did put in adverts in here. Oh well. Um, I was one of those miserable children that didn't have any friends. I was a complete nerd. I was one of those ones that took the piles of books back. And, um, but uh, I think it was in junior high school or, you know, my brother and I were just talking about how neither of us have any memories from junior high school, but, oh no, that's it. I remember I was going up to be the student body secretary, right? No one knew who, the fuck I was. I was in sixth grade. I was 12. And my my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Kegley, I remember his name, said, why don't you go with Mae West? And of course, I'd seen all these old movies. So I went up swinging my handbag and I did that. Hi, is that a pencil in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? I didn't know what that meant. He told me to say that. That would not be allowed these days. Well, the the, the crowd erupted because obviously they had much more sex education than I had. And uh, I got the job. But I thought, wow, all these people are laughing, not at me, but with me. And then I got a same, Mr. Kegley, thank you. I got a part as a teacher in a, a play called The Mighty Germ about the dangers of the cold virus. And this guy was dressed like a superhero, but he was the cold. And he came into my classroom and made everybody sick. And I thought, i got to make a, a big thing here. So I, I developed this sneeze in which I was pushed back, just like um, the guy in, I can't remember his name, he's so famous. Edward Fox did in Day of the Jackal. You know, when he gets hit by the bullets and he flies against the wall? I developed this sneeze that looked like that but without the people pulling on the thing, people erupted in laughter. And that's when I actually got hooked. I thought, I like this right. because they're not laughing at me. They're laughing with me. Right. And right. That, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know you're a big fan of uh, both science fiction and horror. What was your earliest memory of science fiction? How did you get into science fiction? Well, it was my big brother and I blame him all the time. <laughs> it's your fault. He, desperately wanted to see the monster mania, whatever, you know, creature feature every Saturday afternoon. And he made me watch it. He also made me watch The Outer Limits, which I, but we watched Twilight Zone every night in the 60s in America because my dad loved sci-fi or he adored Rod Serling. And Rod, I would say Rod Serling is absolutely one of my, um, you know, invisible mentors as far as someone I admire. Um, so we would watch these movies and I would say it's either Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Thing from Outer Space, The Thing from Another World. These are the black and white versions. Now, I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers was much scarier simply because you have parents putting giant alien pods underneath their children's beds. That was the beginning 
of my paranoia. Paranoia is just reality on a finer scale, as a guy in a movie once said. So every night I would check under my bed for pods, in the closet for the boogeyman, and inside the bed for spiders. And every time my dad went down into the basement, I would have to check to make sure he hadn't been drilled in the back of the neck by aliens because the invaders from Mars, another 60s film, not the remake with Karen Black, is that aliens drill this kid's parents and they become their slaves, not robotically, obviously. And, you know, this is, of course, this is the 50s all these movies were made. And it was the height of, you know, communist paranoia and all this sort of stuff. They're going to be mind control and shit. So that was it. And I once, years later, I told my dad, I used to check the back of your neck to see if you'd been drilled by Martians. And he went, I was wondering why you did that. I went, oh, God, it was noticeable. He remembers how terrible. But anyway, <laughs> so those are the films that scared me the most when I was a kid. Right. But what about you know, classic horror films. You've been talking about science fiction films, but what yeah. about real horror? Do you remember your earliest horror film? My earliest one that made a huge impression on me, and I think it was about the same time that I was actually, I, I was lucky enough when I moved uh, to upstate New York, uh, I reinvented myself, joined drama club, and people didn't know I was smart. I hid the fact I was smart. Isn't that sad? But <clears throat> I, I uh, had this Gothic literature class. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And uh, I was given Dracula, Camilla, Polidori's um, Vampire Fragment, you know, Frankenstein, all these books. But my term paper was The Vampire in Gothic Literature. And my teacher said, Barbie, you have such a beautifully Gothic mind. And I went, so it was Dracula. That I thought was really sexy. I thought, wow, this is a great book. And then I saw the horror of Dracula, as it was known in the States, with Peter Cushing, the fabulous Christopher Lee, Michael Goff as well. And it was, you know, groundbreaking. And I thought, boy, Christopher Lee is so sexy. I can't believe it. And he has only about five words in it. But, you know, it's it's superb. It, it's a, it's to me, it's one of my favorites, along with the Curse of Frankenstein, where again, Peter Cushing is sex on legs. Also, yeah. so perverted when he locks his little servant girl who's going to cause problems with him in the room with the monster and she's screaming her head off. And he's like up against the wall, nearly having an orgasm. I thought, how did they get this past the censors back in those days? It was extraordinary. Yeah, I think the watch, I think talking to Doug Bradley. I remember him recommending that watching all the Peter Cushing Frankenstein films in order just to watch the yeah. arc of that character through the, um, these are the Hammer Horror films we're talking about. Course, um, yeah. Extraordinary, extraordinary performance. Now, what I would like to do is bring you back to shock. You've touched lightly on shock. And uh, for those people who know Gary Newman, you did. So what sort of performance, you, you talked about it being mime. But what's not storytelling mime, I guess. What was it you it, were actually doing? Well, it was all to music. It was a lot of dance in it. And I was the one person in it who could do the mime weird stuff. Also, always to music and um, and the dance stuff. Because I'd had dancing lessons so I could dance and stuff like that. And then we we also sang our singles and our songs and stuff like that, that we had really, we had two singles released on RCA 
because right. they thought, wow, they're so weird. Let's have them in. But they also had a group called Bucks Fizz, which they had won Eurovision. Um, and it's, it, you know, so they, we didn't get a lot of attention from RCA because we were a weird Bucks Fizz as far as they were concerned. So, uh, but we, we, you know, so Depeche Mode actually supported us. I didn't realize this before, after I sent you um, my updated CV. I thought, you know, Tim said, we, they actually supported us. And Adam, we supported Adam, Ants, Adam and the Ants. And I can't remember the, the third person. But, of course, Gary Newman was the big, big one. That was 8,000 people a night. That was the biggest gigs, biggest gigs we ever did. But the funny thing with that was is that we would be doing our weird mimes to Kate Bush, Landscape, um, Wilson Pickett, our own stuff. We had Bowie coming in and going, we had him spinning in with saying things like this incessant need to be fashionable, fashionable, fashionable. It's all a tape that Tim had made. But occasionally, if there was a moment of silence, you'd hear an agonized, we want Gary, you know. Which which kept our egos to a you know that you have to remember who they're really here for. That's the trouble with supporting group. You mentioned the name. You mentioned that you made singles with RCA. What were the titles yeah. of the tracks? Uh, Angel Face, which was a glitter band song, and uh, Dynamo Beat, which was written by Tim and which we all did. Um, and it, we we funnily enough. The video, which you can find on my YouTube channel, I think, um, it's was produced by someone called Eric Fellner. Do you know who he is? I don't. No, I don't recognize um, the name. He, he's he's this one of the biggest film producers out there now. He's with Handmade. Oh wow! The George Harrison's company. Yeah. Yes. And the oh. director, I think, was Simon Miller, who's gone on to do great stuff. But I always keep thinking, oh, God, it's so funny. this was their first job. They they directed Dynamo Beat. It's quite funny, really. Wow, wow, um, wow. So what? how would you describe, you mentioned you did a glitter song. Um, what, how would you describe yourself, punk, goth, or new romantic? What was the look? I think, well, this was, Angel Face was actually really rocky, but it was all done with electronic instruments, mostly done by... Richard Burgess, who went on, who was in landscape, but he went on to do a Spanda ballet. He produced them and all sorts of other bands. But in that time, New Year Romantic, he was known for producing them. And Rusty Egan, who was the sound of the Blitz, there was this big program on Saturday on Sky Arts about two hours long about the Blitz Club, which we performed at. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it's new romantic, certainly Dynamo Beat is. It's like right. very heavy-duty electronica right. stuff in there. And it was sort of a kind of sort of tango-y number. And we, I think we appeared on the Russell Hardy show and White Light. These are TV shows that were, you know, big. They at were the big. Time. They were big on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah Russell Jan. Hardy. Yeah. yeah, he was quite bemused. <laughs> this, this is they're called a new romantics you know but now <laughs> now of course the 80s is you know it's it's all coming back to people being very interested in in the 80s i guess they did the 70s which yeah. was you know, a bit of a dodgy decade all those huge pants you know um well, sorry, trousers 
what really so we must have been in London about the same time I think and what I find amusing the number of times we must have nearly met because one of the girls I was at drama school with her boyfriend was in the Gary Newman band in fact Gary went out with one of my flatmates at one stage um I remember I have New York romantic friends you know always encouraged me to go I never went to the Blitz club I just thought I wonder you know I really should have gone fun it was fun we only went a couple of times i think mark almond was the hat check boy and i mean all these things or or he might have been a hat check boy up in wherever he was from in uh, yorkshire but right. um you know steve strange was there and then he got plucked to stardom uh david bowie went and saw steve strange and everybody and that's why he did the ashes to ashes video he took people from the bliss club and put them in his video um, but we we just were sort of, you know, being rather poor on the King's Road and going, oh, my God, we have to pay a rent. So we didn't go as often as the other members of the band. And well, yeah, I was, a, I was a drama student living on a grant. And yeah, I just kind yeah. of to go to places yeah. like that. Um, but, um, now, you mentioned something about Gary Newman. He came to see us. He was actually, he came to see us a few times, um, which was great. And he said our opening number was I Dream of Wires, but we used Robert Palmer's version. They went, oh, um, I noticed you used Robert Palmer's version. He said, yes, we preferred it to yours. You know, it's <laughs> supposed to be supporting him, Bobby. Shut up. <laughs> oh, it's just open mouth and shirt foot throughout my career. <laughs> One of the other things that you um, did was you modelled for an artist called Joe Brocklehurst. Yes, um, yes. How did that come about? Well, I think it came, I was trying to remember, um, but uh, 80s, but I think it was my, something my manager, I even asked him, my manager at the time, did you arrange that? And he said, well, I think I did. But she did a, of quite a few things of uh, paintings and acrylics of me, which you can see on my website, barbiewild.com. Um, well, but, I'll, um, I'll, if you give me the images, I'll flash them up as well. Sure, yeah. sure. No, and um, yeah, they were wonderful, but I'll never forget showing them to my mother, who was also, uh, she loved art. And she she wasn't, if only she'd run off to become an artist, she probably would have been pretty happy. But, you know, she loved doing art and stuff like that. And she said, why are the hands so big? Because, you know, it's all very punky, but then these enormous hands. And um, I just said, I, it's just her, her thing. But it, she did a whole series of, of punks. And um, my claim to fame is that I was on a greeting card uh, that people sold at... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the shop now, but uh, oh, well, they quite... sold they, they sold them up in Crouch End at an art shop because after drama school to pay the rent, I worked at an art shop in Crouch End and uh, mm. in my drama school of Mount View, and um, I remember those postcards so clearly um, because they were yeah. very popular. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's her her art is very distinctive. Another thing I did want to say as far mm. as the whole punk blue, you know, because I had very bright blue hair then and I still miss it but um I bought my my crazy color up in Camden and Simon Bamford who is our fellow Cenobite said I probably sold you crazy color that's what I was doing back in the late 70s so <laughs> we might have all met <laughs> Simon was notorious for wearing the crazy color when he was at drama school as well <laughs> 
Yeah, I yeah, remember that yeah, very clearly. Yeah. Um, no, but it was, of course, I, that went into the 80s. Then I went to red. And right. then I went to sort of goldeny, orangey thing. And then I thought, time to perhaps. Yes, yes, yeah. Now, so, I'm going to come to the films a little bit later on, but you also t- did TV presenting Yes. Uh, in your career. How did that come about? Well, um, okay. Did the mime thing, which is sort of like fringe theater. Did the music thing. Huge disappointment. So, I mean, we got center page, two page spread in the Sun newspaper, which is quite popular. It was the biggest Gary selling Newman. newspaper in England. In UK. England, yeah. Yeah. And then, then uh, I think it was just things started spiraling down. One of the girls broke her arm in Wales. We were doing this nightclub act and we were all so tired. And I don't blame anyone for her accident, but of course it kind of put a kibosh on certain things. We had to redo um, our numbers, but then a couple members of the band felt we're not getting anywhere here. It's been two years and uh, we just want to do something different. So we carried on as a foursome and that petered out. Then uh, I decided to try and do solo with the help of, of Richard Burgess and John Walters, his, um, uh, one of the guys from Landscape, and we did a few demos, nearly got signed EMI, but it didn't happen because, you know, female solar singers was, hey, we already have Bonnie Tyler. We don't need another one. And I was no Bonnie Tyler. Um, but, you know, I, I it's funny because I got interviewed at Texas Frightmare a couple of years ago and guy was interviewing me. He said, you know, I have to ask about one of what I think is the greatest unreleased track of the 80s, Phantom Lady, which is a song I wrote with Richard and um, thingy. And I went, you really think that? But it's sort of like the last prostitute on earth. And she's, she's a phantom, you know, and all this sort of stuff, very eighties and all this, but nothing happened. So I thought, you know, got to go back to acting. And cause you know, Richard moved to New York. And so I thought, well, this is the end. Although he called me up and said, listen, I just saw this girl at Danceteria. She's doing the same thing you are. Don't give up. And it was the McDonough, McDonough, Madonna, right? And I thought, well, good luck to her, you know. So I went back to acting and got um, a few things. I mean, when I, Richard was still there, that's when I got Grizzly 2, playing a mime drummer in an electronic band. I mean, I was supposed to play the drummer. And I said, how can I do that? Because he was supposed to do it. He was a trained drummer. He said, I'm going to Sweden to do Adamant, produced Adamant. So you, why don't I teach you how to do it? I can do it in a day. So I did it. And I went to Hungary and I never met George Clooney, Laura Dern, or Charlie Sheen, who all played red shirts who died in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, There's this enormous concert and the band came on and did this. And I saw the, what they finally did. And sadly, they cut out a lot of the bits I was in, like the rehearsal scene and stuff like that. But eh, the yoga scene, why would you need that? Um, but uh, um, so that was, I think, was that the first movie I did? Because then it was uh, Death Wish 3. Three, yeah. Yeah. And then um, I also had a small part in Morons from Outer Space with Griff Reese Jones and Mel Smith. And I sang on the, ba- on the, the title track. <laughs> sterling, sterling things. Of course, Bert Rigby, You're a Fool, which was um, – I filmed that I did. Have I told you about that yet? I haven't. You haven't yet. But yes, Bert Rigby. Yes, we must talk. You must tell me about that. Okay. That had Robert Lindsay in it, who's a big star, 
with Citizen Smith. And it was directed by Carl Reiner, American comedy legend. I'd seen him when I was a kid in the Dick Van Dyke show. I was so excited. Went to the audition. They wanted a Cindy Locker lookalike, which I could do falling off a log. Um, I'd probably be better if I fell off a log. But anyway, I suddenly, I was talking to this guy and he was so adorable. And I thought I felt really comfortable with him. And suddenly the devil took over my mind. I said, listen, I've got a different idea. Why don't I do a performance art piece? Woman as dessert. And I'm a robot. And I rip out of this garbage bag and I spray a man with whipped cream. What do you think? And he went, let's do it. And I reel out of his fancy hotel on Piccadilly going, what the fuck have I done? Why did I even say, I now have to create this performance art piece. So I practice and I get this sort of wonderful outfit that looks like I'm just covered in fruit. This sort of suit with shorts and fishnet tights and stiletto heels and all those other mime artists, you know, robotic. Because at that point, I'd cornered the market in being a robotic mime, but in stilettos, just like Ginger Rogers did everything backwards and wore high heels. Anyway, so I go up to Barnsley, New Yorkshire, and this old-fashioned theater where they did not pantomime. What's it called? Uh, oh, vaudeville. You, uh, you mean, vaudeville. Um, yeah, burlesque yeah. kind of thing. Burle- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's this guy, he's an Elvis impersonator who was brilliant. A um, couple other people, uh, Simon Drake, the magician. And so I go up and do my bit. I cut, rip out of my, my, my garbage bag and I'm all colorful. And I grab one of the crew and I cover him in whipped cream, spray whipped cream. And then I do the robot. And that's it, right? To some fabulous music. I come down to say goodbye to Mr. Reiner, who's, he went, I said, was I okay? And he said, Barbie, you're a hoot. So comedy legend, Carl Reiner, thinks I was a hoot, right? He actually did this act where he was balancing plates on sticks with a big floppy shirt, you know, back in the old days when they did that. Anyway, as I leave, uh, Simon Drake said, listen, we're, we're getting the same train. So we're back on the train. He said, listen, I have to say, one of the guys came up to me from the crew and said, uh, you're going back with whipped cream, girl. As he said, yes, I am. He said, lucky man. <laughs> so I go to the cinema with my best friend, Tim, thinking I'm going to see myself make a total fool of myself. And I had, I had, ended up on the cutting room along with Mr. Reiner himself. So I didn't feel so bad, but um, you know, that's, that is the funniest, weirdest thing I did in the eighties. And believe me, I did some funny weird things. Um, <laughs> We've well, told us a bit about Grizzly too. Is a, a, what about death wish for uh, death wish three? Death wish um, three. And they only like, have the number because they thought people wouldn't understand the three Roman numeral three. Can you believe that? That is a good <laughs> Well, that was kind of a weird one for me because I went to meet Michael Winner and we had a lovely chat. And he, so I, I had my own dressing room, which was cool because I played basically the evil Fraker's girlfriend, supposedly. But it's, it's known for having, um, damn, I can't think of his name. Sight. Have to look him up. <laughs> Alex Winter, who was in um, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And also Deanna Troy is in it. 
Marina Sirtis is in it. She gets raped or something. <laughs> film. Anyway, so I go and do this film, and then I don't come down to set. I keep thinking, they'll call me. And finally, I wander down to set, and I hear, where's Barbie? And that's it. I suddenly realize the more, I'll be in the film more if I'm down there all the time. So that's fine. I wore my own clothes, you know, just jeans, rough jacket, looking tough, you know. And we do a few scenes, and it proceeds on. And I don't know if I should tell this story, but why not? It happened. Uh, there's a scene where we're indoors, and I'm supposed to sit on the bed and, and, and you know, listen to their plotting against poor old Chuck Bronson. And Michael Winter says, do you have something else you can wear? And I said, only what I arrived in. And he said, can you put it on? So I went and changed to a bright pink Earth versus the Flying Saucers T-shirt, a leopard skin pink mini skirt, fishnet tights, and pink leather stilettos, which is what I came, that's my day wear. It was the 80s, okay? Obviously, someone's loins were stirred. And Mr. Winner said, oh, darling, I've decided that we should do this scene topless. Can you take your top off? And I thought, that's actually kind you're not supposed to do that, you know? So all I could think of was my little mom, lapsed Roman Catholic. And I thought, I can't do this, you know. My mother was still alive. I said, I can't, I can't. How am I going to get out of this one? And I said, well, actually, I think you know, you're going to have to pay me extra danger money, you know. He said, oh, darling, we're not making any money in this film. And I went, but I just read in the Evening Standard that you sold the video rights for 600,000 pounds alone. And he went, get off my set. Now, he can't, he's not here to defend himself, but this is my memory of it, okay? That I have to, you know, I don't like people saying things about people who can't defend themselves, but that's my memory of what happened. If you look at the scene, they got another girl in there, and she's got her top on. So... Yeah, I. To be fair, and this is the third time that Michael Winner has been mentioned in this oh, on, the, on this show. Um, none of them have been terribly complimentary. Um, it's strange because he made a lot of films, and I don't think I've actually ever watched any of them because they're not my style of thing. But it's yeah. just like, yes, I don't think. Well, my was... brother loved whatever happened to what's his name. With I think he had Oliver Reed in it or something. He was right. he was quite dismayed, but you know what? It was a different world back then. And that's why I, I don't like the sort of a bit of this recidivism. No, that's not recidivism. But, you know, it was a different world. The, the directors were all powerful. And if you mm. said no, you know, you were considered a bad sport. Yeah. And it's sort of like I wonder if because I didn't want to do one stunt in Hellraiser, you know, if, you know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, we'll get onto that later. But I yeah. think it's. It was a different world, and we'd gotten on very well before that. He was always asking after me and blah, 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 and paying me attention. And um, But he was doing that to quite a few girls, fetching yeah. ones, and I was back in those days a bit fetching. Um, but it was it was a, an awkward moment, but, you know, it wasn't it, – it, it never occurred to me to say yes because all I could think of is my little mum, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> 
you know, yeah, it's, it's I, probably I unprofessional, maybe. I mean, what do you think? Is it was it unprofessional for me to say no to my? No, daughter? not at all. It's like Five I mean, you should. I mean, normally, you know, if if you'd had an equity representative on set at the time, my man, my actually. agent was on set. And he said you should have done what he said. <laughs> nice. As you say, a different had another world. week on this picture. <laughs> As you say, a different world, and thank heavens that things have changed, and quite rightly, there is a lot yeah. more respect. Yeah. Shown we to have people. to remember it was the 80s, directors were gods. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of actresses have much worse stories than that to feel mm-hmm. like they had to be browbeat into doing things they didn't want to do. But that was never an option for me because I don't know if it's the Irish stubbornness or the Yugoslavian stubbornness, but I'm, I'm. You know, you you know, it's like some people would say, "Oh yes, I can ride a motorcycle." A friend of mine was in a Little Drummer Girl, the original movie, right. and he said he could ride a motorcycle, and so he's practiced on a little scooter around London, and then he gets to Prague or wherever they are, and they got this huge Harley Davidson, and it it didn't work out well. They had to get a stump guy to do his actual driving for him and they were very annoyed at him so i never say i can do something Mm. that i can't and unless there's time to practice or something but um that was sort of a you know and like i said i i don't blame him because there was no one to say no to him well i guess i do well yeah i I mean basically talking about the law you know the law of contract um if it was a standard equity contract there would have been there would have needed to have been a clause that you know said that you would oh, of course, nudity no, and it would, would be in the script yeah that's yeah you know yeah, yeah. that's why nowadays you have it in the script if there's yeah. nudity you prepare yeah. the act or it's in the it. contract or it's negotiated and so yeah no quite rightly so you touched on hell uh hellraiser hellbound yeah. what's your fondest memory of uh hellbound well, it's not the makeup process, which is four hours, right? Half an hour. Tied into the Listen, there is video evidence of you singing backstage in. Keep my spirits up, <laughs> you know. Bye bye, my Lieberherr from Cabaret, you know, to Little John, bless him, looking totally puzzled. I think the silliest memory is that I had not met the very venerable actor Ken Cranham. Uh, before and I walk in and I'm in my full Cenobite lady Cenobite makeup and he's full channered and he's talking on the phone to his wife right now normally a polite person would walk out of the room no I go up and say hi Ken my name's Barbie do you want to get married and have babies called Pepper and Skipper and he goes um uh, darling, I'm I'm sorry. I'm an actress is talking at me. I'll, I'll get back to you. He turns around and goes, "Hi, I'm Bobby Room." And I suddenly realized this man is British. He doesn't know who Pepper and Skipper are. That's Barbie dolls. They had Cindy dolls in the UK. Cindy didn't have friends called Pepper and Skipper. So basically, I was just raving gibberish at him. But we're still friends. <laughs> He's forgiven me, and I've met his lovely wife, and, you know, it's just, uh, but, uh, no, it, it was just, it was very strange, because it was hurry up and wait, you know. Mm-hmm. We had to get to the set at five or six or whatever, and then we didn't get in front of the the um, cameras until six in the evening, and then it took an hour to get the goop off. You get home, you can't sleep. 
then you have to be up again at four. So it was like, um, it was, it was a, a grueling shoot, but yeah. it was the, the, the friends that we made that were still, hey, we're talking to each other now. Yeah. You know, we're still friends with everybody, and it's it's delightful, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so to go back to the question I asked about 20 minutes ago about getting into TV presenting. <laughs> Sorry, I should, that's really bad into your techniques and things like that. That question I asked you about 25 uh, minutes ago. <laughs> it's my fault for asking it at the wrong that? point in the story. <laughs> well, I think basically because of you know Death Wish 3, that's just Death Wish 3, all these other things. I don't know what so I think it was my agent just said, Hey, listen, do you want to try some TV presenting? Because the acting wasn't really coming in. And um I said, sure. And I I started off with I think it was Music Box TV, American Hot 100 with Pat Sharp. I don't know if you remember him. Uh, he was a mm. was an American DJ. And then um, I, you know, did a bunch of different ones for different companies. It was all cable TV at right. that point. But through them, I, I interviewed, you know, Sisters of Mercy and um, Jimmy Somerville, you know, and he, he was lovely. Uh, but so uh, it, you know, that was great. And then I got this job presenting on this venerable kids TV program that had been around forever called Hold Tight. And that's where I was able to interview people like Iggy Pop, Cliff Richard, who was adorable. He's a Star Trek geek as well. Um, uh, B-52s, you know, pretty big names at the time. Wet, Wet, Wet had a number one hit at the time. And they were all lovely. And it was it was enormous fun. I felt much more, funnily enough, much more um, comfortable right. doing that. And at the same time, I also did this show called Pulaski, filming in the south of France with um, David Andrews and, and a lot of other, you know, the people who'd come up in the world, Carolina and Grish. Uh, after that, I presented uh, the small screen. At the same time, I was doing Hellraiser, too. And uh, so every Wednesday, I had to have two days off because I had to prepare, watch the films, and then give my reviews and film live the next day. Um, and that through that program, I, I was able to interview uh, Nicolas Cage and Hugh Grant. And so that, I just loved being a TV presenter and basically being myself. It's not to say I still don't love acting and all that kind of stuff, but it was kind of fun and I love movies and I was able to review tons of movies but I was told by my assistant can you please stop giving bad reviews I went what she said well people don't want to give us the cliff clips if we're going to get a bad review and I went so you're telling me I have to lie and say I'd like Jaws 3 you know Jaws 3 was a complete vacation for the actors it was terrible I even said that in my review I remember that um, but anyway, she said, well, if you could just tone it down a bit. <laughs> so, even then, I spoke my mind. <laughs> it's always a tough call on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Well, it didn't hurt Barry Norman. I mean, talking about, I'll never forget, Barry Norman coming to the set of Hellbound, right? Mm -hmm. And I hid because he was my hero as a film reviewer. And they tried to persuade him that, you know, so where's Barbie? Oh, and the reason I hid is because nowadays I go, hi, you know, Barry, it's great to meet you. I also do film review on ALTV. But I'd have the Chattered's penis tentacle glued to, glued to my vagina throat. 
And um, that's the Hellraiser Chronicles film. The thing. I, I sold that pay, film, uh, pic, picture for ages without realizing there's the, the penis tentacle glued to my vagina throat called Dr. Freud. There's an emergency. And I thought I felt so, I had to walk around with that thing all day long. Do you remember or do you not? I don't know. No, I, yeah, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was lucky because mine was supposed to hit me in the chest. So I mean, in fact, I, in fact, I just held it in my hand. They didn't actually glue it to me at all, but I do remember you doing that. And just for anybody who's not familiar with Barry Norman, was the BBC film critic and film eighty seven. No, 88 eight, at that eight, time. Yeah, yeah, 88, it would have been filmed. He, Basically, been doing, he did it for decades. Yeah, decades. It, it was huge. Yeah. I mean, he was the voice of the BBC on film, basically. Yeah, and he um, hated Hellraiser, the first one. Yeah, he? no, absolutely. I mean, it, it was a very fair review he gave of Hellraiser. Is that, you know, some some of my friends said that Clive Barker is a genius. I don't agree. Oh. <laughs> What's that effect? Well, no, at least he said some of my friends think he's a genius. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, he, he you know, he acknowledged just how popular the film was. Um, what I wanted to talk to you also about was writing. When did you start writing horror? Well, I started writing about the same time I discovered how much I loved acting. But the actual horror stuff, I had been struggling away on my great American novel or Canadian novel uh, for many years. And I'd shown it to uh, a writer called Paul Kane, who had written this book called The Hellraiser Films and Their Legacy. And he said, wow, this is like really powerful stuff. And he helped me get a publisher for it. I'll always go, thank you, Paul. But he came to me uh, in 2009 saying, we're doing an anthology called Hellbound Hearts based on The Hellbound Heart, which is the original novella on which the Hellraiser franchise is based. We don't want you to write anything to do with the movie, but from the book. And of course, the lead Cenobite is female in the book, which I, I quite like the idea of. So I created this character called Sister Celise, and I believe it was Gary Tunnicliffe who, who posited maybe she was a nun, which fit in perfectly with my lapsed Catholic mums, you know, oh, this is, you know, secretly teaching me all this stuff about the rosary and you know, because my dad was a scientist and he, mm, I only go to church to listen to the choir, you know, that kind of religious guy, uh, not. And so I just thought, oh, I love that idea. So created the character of Sister Celise and Paul, I, I wrote it in a week. Never did anything that fast ever again. But Paul was delighted, went in, and I started getting some, you know, piercingly erotic and all this kind of stuff non-exploitation and I thought oh this is gone getting little reviews and um my partner who's in the music business said oh it's like you're you know because I started writing because of that I was asked to write more submit to more um anthologies he said it's like you're releasing singles before your album which I really like the the the, um, analogy and so that's you know I was still doing that and through Paul I was able to to get a publisher for the Venus Complex, which is my diary of a serial killer novel, written from the viewpoint of the serial killer, which is interesting for me because it's very liberating writing as a man. Because <laughs> you don't have to, you know, no, with no, a man with no impulse control. So that was fun. What research, um, what research did you do for the Venus Complex? I read every book there was about 
uh, serial killers. Uh, I read textbooks, which were very hard to find. I also wrote, read a book called Lust Mort, which was the writings of serial killers, which was really sick. But I was because of um, a, a friend of mine was a dominatrix. She also had a um, uh, master's degree in sexuality, and she uh, would go to these conferences. And there was one about um, uh, sexual offenders and stuff in London, and she took me along to it. And so I met all these famous forensic psychologists, which was like, wow. And then she said, why aren't you asking any more questions? You know more about this shit than they do. <laughs> that was quite funny. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've had lively discussions and stuff. And then when I was in New York, I uh, she put me on to somebody called, um, well, I can't remember his, oh, I do remember his name, but I'll, I'll not say his name to protect the innocent, who was a lieutenant in the homicide division in uh, Manhattan North, which is actually... Um, Harlem, and we I went there and interviewed him. He just finished a serial killer case, but he had worked with my friend, the dominatrix, because a friend of hers had a client, right, who had had a heart attack while she was whipping him, and she freaked out, and so she she had called over her boyfriend, and they cut up the body with a chainsaw and stuck it in a garbage bag and left it outside a Chinese restaurant in Long Island, and so he. He, she, my, my friend was asked to be a character witness. So, well, you know, these things happen. And it's, they, they basically, I think she finally got done for B because she had a good character, believe it or not. Um, she, she just got done for improper burial. See, these are the stories that you get to come across when you research these things. But anyway, that was that. And um, he was very helpful. And so I read, wrote it from, and when I was talking to a, a lovely policeman that I know in the UK, he said, I think you've got everything spot on. I go, thank you. I said, what's best? He said, the frustration the police feel. I mean, you've got all the police procedural perfectly as far as I'm concerned. I went, yes. You know, and then the next stop after that was out for a few years was to have an audio book. And I'd given the book to uh, Doug Bradley's uh, partner and because she loves serial killers. Well, she doesn't love them, but she's fascinated by them. And she said, I don't read fiction. And I said, well, I really did my research. Anyway, so Doug read it to her while she was doing her art. And he approached me and said, I'd love to do. I said, oh, I'd love to have heard you read this book. And he said, well, we have to talk about that. What about an audio book? Because he's. As you know, he does a million. God, my hands look so big when I do that. Um, <laughs> Joe Brocklehurst. Yes, exactly. I've become Joe Brocklehurst. Anyway, so he did the audio book available now on Amazon. And it's Audible. Wonderful lesson. Yeah. 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 So, no, it was, it was great. It's always been fun. And working with Doug again was great because I was basically kind of directing him. But mm. he was wonderful suggestions. So that was enormous fun. Yeah, so yeah. the writing just came about. I mean, I never particularly wanted to write horror. I even said to Paul, I said, I don't do horror. I only write crime. And he he said, you can do it, you know. And so it's just, you know, this is it. And I never set out to write an erotically horror story. And it always turns it. I've just been given a um, um, subject for a new uh, anthology called Inferna. 
based on Dante's Inferno. And I've been given lust and I'm completely, because I never do it on purpose. It just comes out that way because I write about humans and humans are lustful creatures. Yeah. So I just have to, to give it a thought. Sorry, you probably want to ask a question now because I'm rabbiting. Oh, not at all. I, I do want to ask you a question. Funnily enough, I was wondering who are your favorite horror writers? Well, I, I absolutely adore Clive because I think he's funny and sexy and totally imaginative. I can't get, you can't get better than that. I love Paul's work. Um, um, God, isn't that terrible? I think, you know, but again, for things that are unusual, not necessarily horror, I think Rod Serling is fabulous. Richard Matheson, people like that. Uh, but, you know, when you come to my favorite authors, I like people like Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Hemingway for all this supposed misogyny, although he always fell in love with strong women, because it's like it's very muscular stuff. It's quite and I, that's what I try to do with my stuff. I don't like to write too floweryly, but um, floweryly. I'm a writer. <laughs> I just said it in a word, just like Shakespeare. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that's the thing I, I try to, to, the, the other thing I have to do is, is if I find something, I've got to be passionate about it. It's got to be a subject I'm interested in. And that's why it's always very difficult. Sometimes if you're given something for an anthology, you know, okay, you, you've got to write a story about, um, a phobia. And I was given you, I thought, what the fuck is a you? Uranophobia, fear of the god of the sky. Whoa, okay. But I still turned it into one of my greatest fears, which was home invasion. So you see, it's it's sort of like taking something that you would think, how does that work? Mm. But it worked in my story. Yeah. But it it is um it's 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 challenging to find try and find a new way of writing things and to be keep the passion there and keep the realness there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Realness, yeah. another good word. <laughs> the reality, yeah. The reality, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Um, that's right. Um, what are your? What else have you been? What have you been up to recently? Because you still act, I know, because we did a film together called The Offer. Uh, yes. Dark Ditties Presents. Um, you can see on Amazon Prime. You can see on Amazon. In fact, they've got a few. Uh, oh yes, all and of which all feature Simon Bamford, our mate Simon. Yes. Yeah. Um, you've got another one coming out called Dad. Yes. Dad, yes. And that is, I think, just, I mean, I love Mrs. Wiltshire because I think it's a wonderful script and I think Simon is marvelous in it. Um, but this, this one, Dad, is, it's apocalyptic stuff happening and it's a great, great script. script. But of course, because of the pandemic, everything has been, you know, sadly uh, delayed, but it should be coming out in April. Right. On right. Amazon. Right. So that's exciting. Right. And are you writing, are you working on any other projects? Yes. I'm, I'm still beavering away at my, uh, one of my short stories that was in my collection, which is now out of print, but that's getting sorted out, is uh, a story called Zulu Zombies, which was actually in the, um, now, if I was smart, is the bestiarium you did? Oh, uh, yes. Um, bestiarium. I, 
is our lovely friend, um, and he does love his Bean really- Drinkle. Yes. <laughs> and he, he <laughs> comes fabulous names for things. But, yes, um, I remember Doug chiding me because I couldn't pronounce the name of the book in which I was trying to promote. That it's just like, because yes. we had Demonologica so- Biblica for the demon one, and um, Bestiarium or something like that. Bestiarium it- Vocabulum or something. Yes, and it's, on, it's, it's on the website. It was- Again, I got lumbered with Z, and I thought, well, it's either Chinese zag- <laughs> dragons are called Sadatherops. And then somebody said, well, why not zombies? I said, is that a beast? I said, well, hey, it's a monster. You know? yeah. And then it was like Zulu zombies in London, because it sounded good. Now, one of my favorite films when I was a little kid was Zulu. Right. And I thought, wow, what if somebody from that battle had been haunted by the dead Zulu spirits gets them done, they all get put into this spirit bottle. He takes it back to London. You know, 100 years later, his ancestor accidentally breaks it and all zombie hell breaks loose in London. And it also is about two girls on a train in Milton Keynes. Um, and how it clashes together in grotesqueness. I'm writing the screenplay based on my short story of right. that. Uh, but I've got to hurry up because I really want Michael Caine to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> He's still acting, bless him, you know. So um, I wrote a scene specifically for him. So um, there's that, and there's a a novel I'm writing called The Pathology of Ghosts, which is a real-life ghost story. And so I'm working away, but I have to confess that it's been difficult during the pandemic because the real-life horror is all around us. Yeah, yeah. And and as Peter, lovely Peter Cushing said, he said, I don't consider what I do horror. What I do is fantasy. War, concentration camps, that's horror. Yeah. And we're yeah. I do love him. I've got a bigger crush on him than I do on Tom Hiddleston, to be honest. I've, <laughs> I have special <laughs> albums in my photos thing. And it, it, Peter is like way zillion times more than Tom. Um <laughs> But because he just, you know, those cheekbones, it's like, oh my god. Yeah. But um, no, he but he was he was brilliant, and I think his, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's so much horror out there. Mm. Hopefully, there might be a little chink in the um, the dismalness. Yes, yeah, but, I th- things are definitely getting better. For um, thank heavens. Um, yeah. You also mentioned uh, blue eyes. Oh yes, yes. Um, Chris Alexander, former editor in chief of Fangoria. And he's done all these films, uh, Space Vampire, Female Werewolf, um, uh, um, oh, God, it's terrible. But you can look them up. Yeah. Wonderful thing. Um, Blood for Irina. Sorry, I can remember either. I I sent him this story because I think he'd like it, you know, and Mm. basically he adored it. And we're working on the script, and we nearly got some finance from it for it for a couple of years ago. And that's sad. I mean, this is the problem with independent films. But he's very much the kind of filmmaker who'd rather do it on a shoestring but have complete control. Yeah. Because he does the music as well. Yeah. But he's got people there in Toronto who can do amazing special effects. Because he's it's that whole Canadian film community is is so rich because so many yeah. American companies make films in Canada, yeah. either yeah, yeah. In, or a thingy. So it's, we, I just talked to him recently because I knew I was coming on your show and I thought, can I say that he's back on? He said, yes, because he's done two films 
in the last year and a half. Brilliant, you know, wow. under the most amazing circumstances. But so he's he's still beavering away, but he needs a bit more money for this one. So we're just, uh, you know, uh, uh, find, trying to find yeah. out how we can do it so yeah. he has the control he wants, and then he can just. I mean, he's been to been invited to uh, film festivals and stuff like that. And I remember when you and I were in Sitges in 2017, mm. uh, I mentioned it to God, it was that long ago. Yeah. Cause we were just starting then. And I mentioned it to the organizers and said, we love Chris. We love you. So, you know, just let us know when it's out and available, but then something intervened sadly. So yeah. we just, yeah. but it's so important to continue to do our art and continue to make movies even under these circumstances, it's really important. Yeah. You know, yeah. some of the best yeah. musical comedies and, and films came out during the Depression time in the 30s in America. So. Well, yeah, King Kong um, was, was, was notable for coming out. And, you know, all those, yeah, those. those oh, and, and all those wonderful films with Bela Lugosi and Boris mm. Karloff they came out in the 30s too, didn't they? Yeah, 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 so, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Anything else that's bubbling away that you can talk about or? Well, I do have a super secret project that I can't talk about, but oh my God, it's going to be fucking awesome. <laughs> so watch this space. Right. It is a horror project. It is horror, but right. not as we know horror, Jim. So Wow. I um, look forward to that. I, yeah. That, yeah, that, that seems extraordinary. And it seems like a great place to, to, to draw us to the close because we've yeah. We've actually hit the hour. Um, I, I, I'm sorry that if I've been chattering more than the children. <laughs> Don't be daft. <laughs> <laughs> and for, for those of you wondering why we're not doing the normal questions, the, the luggage in the crypt questions, Barbie and I have spoken about luggage in the crypt before. Yeah, check out that. Nicholas Vince's YouTube channel. You yeah, can see it's on my YouTube channel. Um, Barbie, thank you so much. Thank you so yeah. much for joining me today. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you and uh, for inviting me. And uh, hopefully people will think, oh, she did all that other stuff too. Yeah, check it out. As you mentioned, barbiewild.com. There are links there yes. you know, and so on. I'll make sure that's You can follow me on Facebook. It's just I, Barbie Wild, and I have Barbie Wild actor, author page. And I also have my Twitter page, which I neglect, and my Instagram, which is pretty miserable as well. But I do occasionally post photographs and stuff. <laughs> so you're there. Um, people will find you. I'm sure. Facebook Facebook is where I am the most right, right. active. All right. Well, until we meet again, be safe and well. You too. You too. Take care. Lots of love to you and yours. My thanks again to Barbie Wild. What a surprise. We laughed a lot. Next week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by Barbara Crampton. Join me then, and in the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin MacLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm-hmm.